You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Andrew B and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Alan, where we discussed if the markets are priced for perfection, how CTAs capitalize on people's behavioral biases, and what we learned so far from speaking to the best managers in the world in our CTA series. Also, I would like to really encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Kevin was joined by Professor Perry Merling, where they discussed the fascination, or fasc- fascinating is what I meant to say, history of the US dollar and how it came about becoming the world's reserve currency. Fascinating stuff, really. And of course, not to forget... You really should listen to the extra episodes Alan and I are putting out uh, in the last few weeks uh, where we talk to the largest CTA firms in the world. And uh, I think it's probably the first time it's ever been done where you're trying to where we're trying to capture all of their opinions and views uh, more or less at the same time. So I hope you all enjoy that series as well. Andrew, it is so great to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing? How are things in sunny Florida? I think things are terrific. I'm down here for a big ETF conference. So uh, it is uh, now they're having record cold in New York this weekend. So I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> you know, thank this you for week having me also, back. It's great to be back. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's funny because this week, of course, is also the week where um, uh, CTAs and managed futures funds and hedge funds are meeting in Florida. So uh, it is definitely a, a busy time to be in the Sunshine State. Now, um, before we dive into all of the topics we've planned, um, and it will be a little bit different because, um, you know, you and I always talk about different things than I do with the other guys, but I do want to try and summarize what uh, kind of happened in the first month of the month, uh, first month of the year. And so January really turned out to be a peculiar month in that the new year kicked off with a general feeling of malaise in terms of the market sentiment stemming from what proved to be a disappointing holiday selling season. The stock market actually started the year trading at the December low as economic data continued to disappoint. The Fed reacting to a string of weak Q4 economic reports and continued stop and inflation readings communicated that they would reduce the magnitude of rate hikes, again from 50 basis points to 25 basis points. And in holding their words, they did exactly that this week on February 1st meeting. Moreover, the committee members loosely suggested that the peak of the rates cycle will now reach 5% and not the five and a quarter or five and a half they communicated just three months ago. And that change in messaging succeeded in boosting investors' concerns as witnessed in both stock prices and bond yields. The 30-year yield kicked off 2023, yielding 3.96%, only to close the month of January at 3.63%, as investors fretted that the economy was on the verge of recession and the Fed would be forced to cut rates later this year. Paradoxically, Equity indices rallied for the same reason. The S&P 500 gained more than 6% for the month. And while still it's it's still 15% below the all-time high touched in December of 2021, the index has in fact rallied nearly 20% off the 2022 lows, which it touched back in October. Now the catch 2022, or the catch 22, I should say, to the mid-2023 recession story is the employment situation. Despite an alarming number of layoffs, announcements, the unemployment rate, the unemployment insurance, and the available job openings continue to signal a robust job market. And observers have cited the retirement of baby boomers and the general lack of desire to work as a cause, but there's clearly a worker shortage in play. A recession typically results in spike in unemployment, and if the worker shortage narrative holds true, then perhaps the Fed will be able to engineer the much-desired soft landing. But only time will tell. I think it's fair to say, at this point at least, there seems to be somewhat of a disconnect between what Powell is saying and what the markets are hearing. All right, Andrew, we've been in this 
year for about five weeks. What what's been on your radar? What have you what what have you been interested in following the first few weeks of this year? Well, I think I think on the macro side, I think you hit it, which is that there. I feel you know in a sense that we're at this macroeconomic. We're, we're, we're once again in one of those months where everybody is completely certain as what the outcome is going to be, which is that the Fed is going to engineer some of this beautifully soft landing. They're going to stick the landing. They're not going to fall off the balance beam. And and uh, I just it's you know we have a track record of the past twenty four months of the consensus view when it's optimistic being consistently wrong. And so I was asked. I was you know we were talking before. I was I was asked. Uh, uh, yesterday in a meeting about what my target was on the S&P 500, which is not something that I do. Um, and, and, I, and they said, you know, where do you think it's going to be? I said, honestly, it could be up 30%. It could be down 30%. Um, it's, and there is this, you know, as you mentioned, this kind of game of chicken that's going on between the markets and the Fed, where the market is assuming that the Fed really doesn't, isn't as aggressive as they say that they're trying to be. On the other hand, the more meme stocks go up, crypto goes up, equity markets overall go up, you ha- have to think that's probably not a great thing from an inflation perspective either, uh, if there's a big boost to to wealth creation. So I think it's, uh, you know, and at least looking at, at what seems to be going in the managed future space, I think the industry, and you would know better than me, is just, it seems to be trying to figure out which direction we're going in. That we're in one of these transitional periods where they're kind of hunting for signals, but they're not quite sure, and they're moving out of things and looking, but, but um, uh, I mean, is that is that the sense that you're seeing as well? Well, there's no doubt that, uh, and it kind of ties in with what, what we're going to talk about anyways, which is kind of the uh, performance of trend following so far this year. And there's no doubt that uh, trend followers had some headwind uh, in terms of performance in January, uh, some more than others, uh, for sure, because the two of the strongest trends in 2022, which was global bond yields going up and as, as well as the dollar, um, you know, has continued to reverse course uh, in January. The the question is, I mean, is this a kind of a bear market rally in in price, or or are we seeing something more uh, fundamental uh, taking place? And the same with with equities, uh, as I mentioned before. I mean, they're pretty pretty strong so far this year, and and, and it was somewhat undetermined. But what's interesting about the equity side, I think, within trend following is. And you might, I don't know if you're able to pick that up in, in your replication, and that is, I think positions are somewhat, they're not uniform across uh, the globe. There are going to be parts of the world where uh, trend follow is going to be long, and there's going to be parts of the world where they're short. And I think that's an interesting, but it's also a sign of, as you say, a transition period. Now, fixed income, of course, is has been a big driver last year, and it's certainly also been a big driver this year in terms of uh, where the losses have have come and 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 again, you know, it comes down to speed of of models uh, for sure in terms of how you navigated uh, the first few weeks. Um, currencies, n- not so sure. I mean, of of course, um, faster trend following models would have maybe done somewhat better in terms of picking up the weakness of the dollar a bit earlier. Um, and then commodities, I think it's. Um, Probably very much dependent on on kind of um, your the breadth of, of commodities you trade. Uh, I think some of the smaller commodities have had big moves, uh, like lumber. And I see this month, for example, I think things like orange juice, which none of these that we trade on our side, but they're, they're going to have a, a, an impact on performance for some managers for sure. But overall, commodities were not necessarily the place where you saw the biggest uh performance attributions in January, I would say. But it is an interesting start to the year. But I think the real question is, you know, are we just getting a little bit ahead of ourselves and, and are we getting too excited? And 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 the wish for a soft landing is so strong. But the interesting part in all of this, when you look at it from an investor point of view, who will both, I hopefully, hopefully have the traditional investments and, and some uh, CTA exposure, is that... Isn't it just wonderful that that you know what didn't work last year uh, is now working well, and you're probably making more money on your traditional investments because the allocations is bigger uh, than than you're losing on your trend following or your your CTA side, and that's exactly how it should be. Back to your point about hope, which I think is so. You know, I've been talking. We, I wrote a short paper in the beginning of 2021 about the return of inflation, um, and. Like a lot of things, I was standing on the shoulders of a giant, um, and, and that Stan Druck and Miller made this incredible inflation call. You know, and it was very completely contrarian. And I, I talked to people for the next eighteen months about it. And and you know, I think when people talk about trend following, they often talk about taking advantage of behavioral biases. 
Um, to me, the bigger component of it is actually people's jobs, right? The asset, the asset management industry is designed to move slowly, right? We are not supposed to be, um, uh, you know, nervous crack adult squirrels who buy and sell because we get, you know, one new, new piece of information. We're advisors are supposed to be steady hands. Allocators come up with, consultants come up with 20-year asset allocation assumptions. And so the vast majority of the, of the asset management industry is designed to move slowly. And so when inflation started to happen, it started to happen fast. And so what you really saw was that the vast majority of the asset management industry fought it for 18 months. And every time there was a glimmer of hope, it was, okay, the ports, it's a ports issue in LA, it's transitory, it's this, it's that. And so my observation was the reason managed futures did so well in that 18-month period of time was because it was contrarian, right? It wasn't just that they made money, it's that other people weren't reacting because they couldn't, right? If you had, you, you could not, if you had a standard 60-40 portfolio at Vanguard at the end of 2020, you had a massive low rates bet everywhere, if you were buying AA bonds at a 1.5% yield and you had an S&P 500 being where you had FANG stocks being supported by low, low interest rates and you were buying real estate with three caps, everything you were doing had a low rates bet. And everybody who was famous had made money and been leveraged into the low rates bet, you know, whether it was Kathy Wood or Chase Coleman or, 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 or crypto people. And so um, when I was actually in November, I was in Boston on um, November 10th when it was the first inflation print that came in below expectations. And I was talking, I was with a lot of big, long-only institutional consultant type investors. And at that point, you could see in their eyes, because I was, because we were, we were seeing things in our portfolios, everything was going in the wrong direction. Right? The yen is spiking, you know, rates are coming back down. And, and, but I can see the same reaction on their side. And these are long-only guys. They had cut duration. They had, you know, gotten out of growth stocks. They had been, they had gone through this kind of wrenching, and they'd finally conceded that we were in this period of perpetually high rates. And then so I think a lot of what happened in the last six months of the year was people panicking and basically saying, you know, because they had six weeks, if they didn't readjust their portfolios and get back in, the fear of missing out, but it was also they would be killed on the benchmarking side. And so I think, you know, I think when people talk about how difficult this market has been, it's a lot of it has been that. And I think on the on the managed future side, I think what happened basically was that we were all of us were kind of collectively in this contrarian position. And then now with everybody kind of piling into a lot of the trades by last fall, it means that as the unwinds have happened, as the change have happened, it's just been more violent than it otherwise might have been. Yeah. And the other thing, uh, as I hear you speak, um, I'm kind of reminded of the fact that I think trend followers actually started going short bonds uh, in early part of 2021. And then over the summer of 2021, we got stopped long <laughs> because markets took one of those corrections that were just long enough and big enough for us to have to change uh, positions. So our models flipped to the long side, not by much, but still. And then, of course, it all turned out to be kind of a, a fake um, um, uh, signal. And and so we just got short again in Q4 of 2021. And there's no emotion, there's no drama, that's just the way it is, even though we as humans, uh, as we observe these uh, changes in, in direction of our models, uh, sometimes can be a little bit, um, you know, upset that we just had to to close our positions. But that's the strength of what we do, that there is no um, opinions, there is no um, sentiment of feeling. There are, no, there are no research reports to retract. There are no clients to update and tell them that your great 10-year prediction of three months ago is now wrong. Um, you know, there are no, it's, I mean, it is, I mean, you know, I think as we'll talk about is how do we take that, right, that incredible strength of the strategies, the dispassionate, cold, rational nature of it and get people to buy into that the way they buy, to want that as much as they want the illiquidity premium. You know, as much as they want a particular factor that they think is going to do well over the next seventy years, and uh, anyway, so that's that's also been after once I once I hit the holiday season, I basically I shut off a lot of social media and I said I need to actually learn how to write full sentences again and and, <laughs> and spend time thinking and processing the, the hundreds of conversations I've had with people and try to figure out where where we go from here. Yeah, no, I mean, great, and and I can't wait to uh, to dig into some of those uh, thoughts. Just uh, to finish off the the month of January. Um, my own trend barometer finished at 34. That also confirms 
Um, that we should expect some negative returns. Uh, it's certainly on the weaker side. And when I look at the early numbers for the industry, then the beta 50 index was only down 11 bips, um, so 0.11%. The SockGen CTA index down 0.77%. The trend index down 1.34%. And the short-term traders index was down 0.17%. So this is, of course, incredibly irrelevant, so to speak, in terms of uh, performance. There's no drama in that in that department. But I will say that, of course, some managers, you know, will have seen much bigger swings than this. It very much depends on the time frame because the longer term models certainly got hit harder um, in January. Um, and I speak a little bit from experience in that area. But Andrew, we're going to dig into um, some of your observations. And and when I when I started communicating you a couple of weeks ago in terms of what should we talk about today, uh, you had a great idea. And and I think the idea is is trying to. And I don't know exactly the words you used, but it goes to the point about how we can uh, essentially get investors to be compelled to look and invest in what we do, and not trying to force anyone, not trying to convince anyone, but really compel them to look at this strategy. And you have uh, a number of great points. I'm going to let you uh, start off and, and hopefully I'll, I'll keep up and, and, and comment a little bit and we can dig deeper and go in all directions that uh, we uh, that, that we you know find uh, appropriate but I think that's what today is all about it's not about sort of nitty-gritty um, you know correlation or ATRs or anything like that this is big picture stuff uh, and hopefully it'll uh, appeal to uh, a very broad uh, audience uh, in terms of that so I've heard you say I think maybe you said it last time you were here I've seen you put it in your writing that managed futures is the single most valuable diversifier you can add to a portfolio of stocks and bonds. Now, of course, this is something that became clear to me after I read the 1983 uh, Dr. John Lindner study, um, which came out just a few years before I started in this industry that I thought, wow, this is really great. So what's funny about some of the points that we're going to be talking about today is that they're kind of the same as they have been for a while, but we're going to maybe talk about them in a slightly different way. And I know you have some great analogies that you use to explain things. So uh, so I'm excited about uh, our conversation. So why don't you, let's just start with kind of the the point number one, so to speak. Sure. So, well, so as usual, I'm late to the game. So I'm, I'm, uh, and, and, and learning from people who've been doing this for a lot longer than I have. Um, so just as a reminder, like we, we got into manage, the managed future space in 2015, uh, when we were building a portfolio and, and, and our business is, is really not to build our own strategies. So we, we did look at building simple trend strategies that, um, and we looked at the risk premium products. We looked at a bunch of different things. You know, when I take a step back and look at just the basic, forget about the headline of what it is, right? And you say that, Here's a strategy that has four characteristics. And, and by the way, when I say the strategy, I mean the SockGen CTA index, because one of the incredibly annoying things about hedge funds is you don't have 70 years of good data for obvious reasons. Um, but the SockGen, SockGen has done everybody a great service by from January 2020 to the present saying, you know, look, what, are the, what are the top 20 guys um, in the space, the 20 largest guys in the space, and, and how have they done? So we, we kind of consider that to be the gold standard of, of, of data on the space. And, you know, Barclays has good data as well, as do some other places now. But, but if you look at that data from 2000 to the present, so but through the dot-com crisis, through the GFC, through 2022, you have a strategy that has done 75% of the returns of equities, 120% of the returns of bonds. You ha it has done that with zero correlation to either one of those. It has a max drawdown over 22 years of 14%, which is less than a third of equities, which have had two 50% drawdowns, and now is less than bonds. And it's done the best when stocks and bonds have done the worst. Well, I shouldn't say stocks and bonds, but when you've had when 60-40 portfolios have done the worst, like 2000 through 2002, 2008, and 2022, it's done the best. So if you stop there and you're building an asset allocation model, the debate is over, right? This 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 strategy, defined broadly as the overall space, should be five to twenty percent of every portfolio. 
And it has much more diversification benefits than private equity, which is even if they don't mark to market and, you know, Cliff Asnes's head explodes when, when uh, uh, you know, when, when you get the smoothing of returns. But, um, but it's obviously highly correlated to the equity markets, whether people want to believe it or not. Private credit is, is obviously correlated to bonds. And now we're in a world where stocks and bonds are going to be moving together probably for the next 10 or 20 years. So I think, I think when you just stop there, and so, so to me, the really interesting question about managed futures is why don't people own more? You know, so in our space, in the ETF space in the U.S., it grew a lot last year, and we're still about somewhere between two and three basis points of the overall ETF world. You know, not 1%, not 50 basis points, not over. In the mutual fund space, uh, let's say it's $25 billion in assets, right? So that's maybe 6% of the overall liquid alts world in the U.S., in the U.S. mutual fund, fund world, and has infinitely more diversification benefits than the other 94%. And it's 10 basis points of the overall mutual fund world. So, so you know, in December when I plugged, when I unplugged, and I've had you know the great opportunity of talking to tons of people on the U.S. advisor side, at the wealth management platforms, less so on the institutional side that, or, and the family office side. But, but, but I'm I'm talking to those guys a little, a little bit more now. Is just to me the fascinating question is, you know, nine out of ten guys I talk to don't have anything in the space. And so why? What is it that stops them from owning it? You know, what is it that makes them? It makes it so easy for them to say, I want to own private equity at the tail end of a bull market where the completely industry has been completely changed and capacity constrained and all sorts of other issues. And so that's that's been my obsessive focus. And I'm trying to write about it and talk to people about it um, because I think I think we just need to find a way to bring more people into the tent. I think it'll be good for them and good for their clients and good for their businesses if we can, if we can get it right. Yeah, no, I could obviously completely uh, agree with all of that. But I, before we then dive into you know, some of the things that we hopefully – can help with in terms of uh, overcoming some of these challenges. Uh, I wanted just to pick up on one little sentence you said, and I'm curious whether there's something you think about uh, in terms of why you believe that. But you mentioned that stocks and bonds are likely to move in tandem for the next 10 years. And is there a reason why you think that's the case? Uh, you know, I'm just curious. It's, it's no... So there... there... People who study this, and I'm not somebody who studies it myself, but people who I think are very smart and spend their time thinking about these things, they look at, and PIMCO did a study on this as well, and they're, I, from what I've heard, they're quite good at, at the whole bond market thing. Um, they, um, but um, basically, when rates get higher, uh, that, that the inverse correlate, when you look at stocks and bonds over very long periods of time, when rates get, and you divide that according to the absolute level of interest rates, as rates get above about 4%, you tend to see positive correlations over time. Um, what all the underlying drivers are, I don't know, but all I know is that in 2022, they both went down together in October, they all went up together or November, they all went up together <laughs> this month. They're both going up together. January. So it, January doesn't, so, I mean, it, so it doesn't feel like, you know, they're, they're really offsetting each other. Now, I think the reality is the, the inverse correlation of stocks and bonds has always, even in the 2010s was a little bit of an absurd statement because it was obvious that. Fed policy was driving both. But what happens is, you know, is, is statistical models have kind of, when, when statistical models get involved, people's brains, human brains just sort of stop working and they want to see what the models say. So even though you had this, this, this underlying factor driving both of them, the day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month correlation between the Bloomberg Ag and an equity market was low or negative. But you take over a longer period of time, you see they're both going up. Um, so I think I think it's been an issue for a while. But I think just statistically, anybody who's building a model right now has a major problem because they're turning the dials on what their assumptions are, their correlation and other assumptions over the next 10 years. And it's not negative the way it was. It's going to be maybe it's, you know, something so. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, and 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 the, the, this is the data that I uh, have been looking uh, on as well. Uh, and I also about a couple of years ago started talking about it on the podcast saying, well, this is most likely going to happen. Um, and so I completely agree with that. And also it kind of touches on another thing that I think is important and maybe we'll come to that later in the discussion. And this is this thing about, you know, sometimes we just need to trust the evidence and we shouldn't be too kind of um, concerned about trying to explain every single little detail as to why this will happen. But you sometimes just have to say, well, as you say, if it's happened most of the time in the last 100 plus years, there's probably a high probability that it's going to continue to work like this. Uh, same with uh, why trend following adds value to stocks and bonds. Well, it's 
actually done that for however long we can go back. So maybe there's a good argument for it continues to do that. So so I I I, I like this uh, sometimes these more simple explanations where where you don't have to uh, uh, come out with your professor hat to uh, understand uh, why something might happen. Um, so. Uh, well, I, but I think I think it has really interesting implication for diversified portfolios because I mean you can in a sense divide the portfolio into things that are correlated to stocks and things that are correlated to bonds and then truly other stuff and you know and the other stuff is sometimes illiquid where people don't market to market sometimes it's something like Millennium where they have magically seemed to eliminate all market risk with 10x leverage and not blow up um, hats off but there aren't that many things you can point to like real estate is going to be really correlated to stocks or bonds, depending upon the market environment that we're in. So there are very few things you can point to and say, it's it's not correlated. It truly marches to the beat of its own drum. You know, that's my that's my little soapbox that I will be carrying around for this year is basically, if you think 60-40 is dead, then managed futures should be your first due diligence exercise to try to figure this space out before you, you know, waste your time in other areas. Well, let's help them out a little bit further. Uh, I think you go on to talk about predictable diversification benefits. Do you want to uh, dive into that? So the world has been taken over by, by, by the idea of building diversified models. Right? In the 1990s, people started to build models, and, and a guy named Brinson and, and Beer Bauer wrote a paper that basically said, look, the reality is if you get the asset allocation right, that's 90% of what you do. Right? It's, and what what that's done is, uh, you know, first it it, it took it, it, through the institutional consulting world, it overtook the institutional space. Right, so let's add more and more slices to the portfolio, and we'll add more and more complexity. And our sharp ratio will, will, over the next ten years will go from 0.4 to 0.42. Uh, but you know, but people like it. It's complicated. There are always things you can point to. That same thing has happened in the wealth management space. Um, now the difference on the wealth management space, though is that people build asset allocation models. So how do you decide what to put in it, right? You can, you can look at the past and you can look at all the data in the past, but then you end up saying, well, yeah, I really wish I'd owned the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ over the past 10 years. That's not necessarily what I want to own over the next 10 years. So you start with the historical data and then you massage it to come up, to, to line it up. And it's 80% art, 20% science to try to figure out what you think the world is going to look like over the next 10 years. Are emerging markets going to come back? What sort of premium should they have? And then so you, you divide up the asset allocation pie into all these different buckets. Then comes fund selection. And all fund selection is, the sole purpose of fund selection is to find something that matches or outperforms each of those pies in the bucket. Right. So one way to do it would say, okay, so I've used the SockGen CTA index to decide that this space is amazing from an asset allocation perspective. And look at Dunn. They've done better, right? So I not only get these great diversification benefits of the space, which I can see, but even better, because I think, because Dunn's going to be my pick for that. That's where I mean sort of the, the, the category, the strategy of diversification benefits, but individual funds within it will be quite different. Um, and so I think the challenge is on the institutional side of the fence. So because, because in a sense, the managed future space grew up as, as single manager products being offered to family offices, institutional investors, wealth management platforms, et cetera. And, and in, in the larger investors, they can build their own cars from these different parts. And you can combine a short-term guy, a long-term guy, throw in a counter-trend guy or whatever, and you get some sort of diversification. But really all the role of that is to construct something that looks like or matches or outperforms the benchmark you just used in, 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 in deciding that you want this to be a 5% or 10% allocation in your portfolio. And so the problem is that doesn't translate easily into the wealth management world because most guys in the wealth management world, and this is, it's not just managed futures, it's equity long short, it's, they, they, they generally say, I want this strategy and they pick one fund. And so, you know, in, in the managed futures space in the US, I mean, AQR to me did an incredibly positive thing when they launched their fund back in 2010. Because they brought before that a lot of the funds had been you know were kind of sub advised products. They came into the market with what you know a true institutional quality fund with a with a you know what I think people thought was a fair fee structure. But I think what people a lot of the allocators thought was AQR and 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 the index will always be the same because of who they were. And that and that that tension I think has been a real problem for a lot of allocators. And I think we're trying to figure out how to solve that. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I obviously 
kind of understand why you are also taking that view. And, and, and of course, single managers will be different, right? But I do, I will say one thing. And of course, there are some managers uh, that go out of business. So, you know, obviously you have to be aware of that. That's, that's true. Uh, I guess some, you know, multi-products also go out of business, whether it's because they are true for the funds or whether, I, I, maybe you know this, uh, maybe there's been some replicators that's gone out of business over the years as well. I don't know. And there but, are a few more that what, should. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but what I will say to some extent, and wanted to hear maybe your thoughts on that, couldn't you argue, from my side of the table, couldn't you argue that if you pick someone that's been around for a long time, so there are plenty of established names that I think is unlikely to go out of business, right? That actually their performance in the long run will be pretty close to the SOCGEN CT index if that's what people want, right? Because I do I do, I do, accept the, the, the uh, variability in performance year by year or whatever. But on the other hand, when you look at these long-term curves, right, there's a lot of correlation in the end. And therefore, there is actually once you volatility adjust the returns performance is 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 not you know super different in no, the no, long I think, run right and i and yeah. i think i mean so i think it first of all you can to me having a single manager manage futures fund in your portfolio is a lot better than having zero and having two to me from a risk perspective is better than having one you know three is probably better than two from a risk perspective four you probably you get a marginal benefit you can go to Abby, right? Abby does this for a living, and they'll give you more diversification. Um, and you know, and hopefully, they can find a collection of guys who who do it. There, are, there are a lot of different ways to approach it, and there are advantages and disadvantages to each, right? So, so one of the things is, I, I think what I'm what I'm trying to do is, um, and my whole career has been kind of getting into new area and trying to figure it out. And and what I'm trying to figure out now is what really goes on in the minds of advisors. And so, and so one of the things I've realized is that managed futures as an asset or as a strategy has three very different kinds of diversification benefits for them. Okay? The first is those numbers on the SOCGEN CTA index. It, it's a little bit like when you read an AQR paper that says trend would have worked for 140 years. Right? That, there's, a, there's an element of, of absurdity in that. Right, that if only somebody had invented a computer in the 1880s, we could have made money in trend. It's like it's not. It's, but but what it is is the long-term numbers allow people at the investing committee level, at the model level. It's the piece of paper that allows them to justify doing what they want to do in the first place, which is add the strategy because they like it. People who know that private equity returns are smooth don't try to unsmooth them and then justify putting them into a private in, into their models. They, if they want to own private equities, they'll put them in that way. So very, very long term. And that's where you can sit down with a client and say, hey, if you do Vanguard over there, and again, remember, the asset management business is really weird, right? We, one of the largest firms is a nonprofit. Right? I mean, imagine, imagine if Citadel tomorrow decided, you know, yes, thank you, we made $10 billion, whatever we made last year. Now we're doing it for free. Okay, <laughs> like... <laughs> what that would do to Millennium and everybody else. So, so everybody is out there. Everybody has, has terror about Vanguard because you've got somebody who's basically saying, not only philosophically do we think nobody adds value, but, but a 60-40 portfolio and you should do everything for five basis points. But um, So you've got to justify why you're putting it. And so you put, you put this into a model portfolio and your sharp ratio goes up, your risk, your, your drawdowns improve. That's step one of diversification. The more near-term thing is what happened last year, right? And we call this sort of the beacon of green in a sea of red, that this happens to be a strategy where even if you had a 2% allocation in managed futures last year, and it didn't, and instead of going down, you know, 20% at the bottom, you went down 19.5% at the bottom or whatever the number is, um, uh, it's still, it, 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 that the value of that punches way above its weight. Yeah, because there is a constant dynamic between between advisors and clients or allocators and their ICs of shifting attention to the things that are working. And so in a year like last year, you didn't have a lot of things working. If you had a great big crude oil position, you were happy for most of the year. Um, but now you have something that's up. So, so, so that's a much more tangible thing that people are looking for. 
Now what happens right now in a period like this is they feel like, darn it, I missed it in 2022. I got to wait 10 years for it to happen again. So I'll wait nine and hope that I can time it, which I don't think works. So, so you basically have these three different things. You have, you have like a long-term thing, a shorter-term thing in terms of being able to show last year that we outperformed because we had this as a diversifier. And then you have the client management of being able to point to something up. And so all of those can be accomplished then. Right. If I had a if I had a five percent allocation to you guys last year, all I would have done is talked about you guys, and and most guys will do that. There is one large member of the Sockgen CT index who was down thirty five last year, right? And who did who was outperforming most everybody else in the preceding years because they were better equipped for for a world. So it's you know even in the mutual fund space, ETF space in the U.S., twenty percent of funds were down last year. And the spread between you guys and the bottom guy was 70 points. Like that's a lot of variability for somebody, for, for most advisors. Now you and Alpha Simplex and AQR, you guys are generally going to be pointing in the same directions because there's an underlying philosophy that I think is common in what you guys do. But some of the funds out there like Milburn, you know, was not a trend fund by the time 2020 rolled around. I think just... A lot of those nuances have been lost because people say it's, you know, they're in the same category. They have business cards with roughly the same names and therefore they must be doing the same things. And I think sophisticated guys like you who've lived in the space and sophisticated allocators know about these distinctions. I think that's lost by the time you get to to 99% of the population out there. So that's so it's it's a tension. It has you know people have to figure out how to deal with it. You know. Yeah. No. No. I completely agree, and I and I think that um, and definitely um, uh, you know from a, an advisor's point of view, uh, there's definitely some some mileage in that. It's funny before we jump on to the next uh, points that you wanted to talk about, but I have to share a little story with you because you mentioned this thing about cost. What what if uh, uh, what if some of these big firms were just saying, well, we're doing it for free. Well, I actually happened to be at a conference last week in Barcelona, and um, it was not a, it was not a trend following or futures conference. Uh, it was actually a volatility conference, but to my Pleasant surprise, uh, there was quite a bit of trend following that was being talked about, right? And there were even some presentations being done by big investment banks about trend following. And it was kind of funny because both of the ones I noticed had some, uh, let's put it, uh, interesting ways of uh, of uh, showing it or talking about it. And I'm not going to name any names, but uh, there was one very large uh, bank, uh, investment bank, that um, claims to have three to four billion dollars in uh, in trend in their trend strategies. And when asked by one of the people in the audience about, okay, so what? How much does do you cost? How what does it cost? You know what? How do you charge it for it? And the guy basically said, well, it doesn't really cost anything. So, um, you know, and, and, and then he says, well, of course, there's a little bit of structuring fee and, you know, do you want it as a swap, et cetera, et cetera. So we all know it really does cost something. But the fact that they're prepared to say uh, it doesn't cost anything, I thought that was interesting, uh, especially as a manager doing business with a firm like that. You kind of think, well, OK, it's one thing that you offer you know, replicating your clients, but if you're doing it for free, you're not even making money uh, on it. It's kind of even more irritating, I would say. But that's just my personal opinion. Well, that was, I mean, um, that was the and it, you know the risk premium, alternative risk premium space when it when it took off in the mid two thousands two thousand tens. You know, it was all it was all in swaps, and and so for the first couple of years, it was basically marketed as free, and then regulators and boards and stuff said. Mm. And so you got to do a little better than that. And so they got bumped out of some of the portfolios that they'd been in because zero turned out to be three. Um, I know of one case where zero turned out to be nine uh, when you got through everything. So um, I think, I mean, you know, I think I'm often framed as a, as a like, I'm not an anti-fee guy, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, red-blooded capitalist like everybody else. I'm doing this. I get up in the morning, you know, we talk about four or five in the morning and I do this stuff because I, I love it, but I also want to make money doing it and figuring out kind of what the right fee deal is, not just a, a moral exercise. It's also an economic and cost-benefit exercise. And I've, you know, I've said like a lot of, a lot of strategies have tremendous value. Um, uh, I, I'm, if somebody, you know, said here, you have to give money to one hedge fund for the next 20 years and, you know, I hand it all to Citadel or Millennium or something, and let them figure it out uh, and pay you know pay fees through my nose. But then they'd leverage one dollar into ten, and you know hopefully it wouldn't blow up, and I'd have a you know two to three sharp ratio, and you know would be happy in twenty years. But um, 
but I do think I do think there needs to be. I think on the, I think what happens is in, in the asset management industry, and, and and in the in the hedge fund industry of old, people always would say, "I only care about net of fee returns." But what what they were really saying is, "I'm going to buy a fund who's gone up where nobody cares about fees." And you know, in last year in the managed future space, you know, hundreds and hundreds of basis points of fees, and nobody cared because they were up twenty percent. <laughs> when everything was down, right? And, and you know, I think what I'm just trying to do is try to understand not just, it's not just education, it's trying to understand what people believe. Because I talked to people, I was in a meeting yesterday, and his, the guy's frame of reference was a 10-point trailer on a John Henry f- product in the 1990s. And I had to kind of shake him that how much the world has changed since then. So it's, anyway, it, it's just fascinating to see kind of how people think about this space because there there are so many ideas that are just flat out wrong. You tell somebody that's had a max drawdown of 14% over 22 years, that they're just like, no, 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 this is a, this is a leveraged, long, short, derivative-based black box strategy. Of course, you've had major blow-ups. And they haven't. So I, anyway, so I just, I think it's, I think they're, it's so complicated. All, all these, all these, all these different threads out there. Sure. No, I I, um, I completely agree with that. And um, but the other, th- I just wanted to mention my other story because then there I went to this other presentation of something that um, is pretty close to what uh, what what you guys are doing because uh, they will be replicating uh, uh, the Sokjian Trend Index. Let's call it that, and they're going to be using some uh, fancy AI and. And and it all looked it, it all looked very good when when you added that and the equity curves got better and better and then the final point uh, was oh well, you could also add some short term trend following and then the equity curve went even higher and then there was another guy raising his hands in the audience saying well I've heard that trading short term is can be very expensive how much cost have you included in your chart and uh, it was very quiet in the room and then they said well we didn't include the cost <laughs> so. So anyways, there are people have to uh, certainly read the small print um, before they get into any of these things. Anyways, let's move on. You also talk about a clear and simple reason why it should work. Um, is that where you want to go next or just sure? Really? I mean, yeah, so I, th- I think a lot of people have talked about this space. And, and again, you you have much greater history and, and knowledge about the space than I do. But I think I think a lot of people have talked about the space as sort of, it's always a question of why it makes money, right? And 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 the best answer for that is a sentence in 12 words or less that nobody argues about, right? So even today you walk into an institution and say, why do private equity firms make money? And they'll say, oh, the illiquidity premium. But it, people take these things as canonical. In the managed future space, what in, particularly in the 2010s, and, and, and I think it started with Asnes' paper. He'd wrote a paper called um, an alternative future back in the mid 2000s, and and what he really kind of I think established was this idea that you could identify some more complicated strategy that was underlying driving the performance of a particular hedge fund strategy that seemed even more complicated than that. And so this idea of kind of trend following, I think it became very popular to say managed futures equals trend following. Now in our world, where we see the world divided between guys who, as you say, have high correlation, they're trend followers in general, they're going to be different lengths, et cetera, but in general, their skis are going to be pointing in the same direction. And then you've got guys who are doing other things. So the problem with calling something trend following is that we've not established that as something that people want and why. And where you get to the end of the sentence, because then they get, because people then come back with questions like, well, well, when does trend following work better? When does it not? You know, people don't don't generally say, um, you know, well, when is the illiquidity premium? When's the right time to buy the illiquidity? And when's the, how do I time the illiquidity premium? But I think the way people have tried to explain it is around heuristic biases, right? And it, and it, it's lined up with behavioral finance, that that we're all these kind of flawed calculation machines with all sorts of biases built into it. And my sense is that's not the it's it's, it's always out there, right? We had you know we had. I spoke to people who were asking, you know, if we were going to do 20% a year last year. And I said, no, like, let me just be very clear. No, we're not going to. Uh, I, I hope we do, but we're not, you know, it's very, very unlikely. I think the bigger issue, though, is, is, is constraints, that we have jobs. And in the asset management world and the, and the allocation world, that's even more pronounced. And it's back to the point that we were talking about. Beginning of 2021, there, Stan Druckenmiller can change his views on the world and shift his portfolio in a week if he feels the world has changed. Not a single pension plan in the world can do that. Not a single model portfolio will do that. For them, a, a courageous move 
is going from 5 to 6% in emerging markets after having thought talked about it for a year. And that's very much by design, right? The whole, the whole ethos of asset management, uh, the whole wealth management industry, the institutional asset management industry is the, the, the smart guys are patient. They are long-term thinkers. They're steady hands at the wheel, right? That, that because if you flip fast and get it wrong, you're done, Right? And so, so I actually think the real reason Manor Futures has this advantage in a period like, it's most pronounced in a period like 2022 or, or the GFC, is because sometimes the world changes a lot faster. There's a regime shift that occurs a lot faster than most investors can adapt. And so what do you do if you're in that seat? Your first thing you have to do is hope. Right? You have to hope it's wrong. <laughs> Like you see the data starting to come in and to preserve your job, to preserve the, to protect the decisions that you've made, to confirm the decisions that you've made and how you've kind of built your business, you have to hope it's not happening. And what I think happened in 2021, back to your point about flipping to short treasuries, is there are guys who are flexible, right? There are guys who do it and it does move prices, but not all the way. Just like in a contract, it moves them a little bit. And managed futures guys, again, they don't care that they had the opposite position. They don't care that they were saved by being long bonds in, in March of 2020. They see those breadcrumbs and they just flip, do it. And so they do it fast, right? So they can move in a matter of weeks or a couple of months, not over 18 months or two years. And so I think that's a, a better argument because it's less condescending to people. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're not supposed to be a day trader, but you know what? You can outsource a portion of your portfolio to guys who do this really well, who can do it. You give money to Millennium because Millennium is going to figure out how to manage, make money over time. You're outsourcing a portion of your decision making to them to find ways to make money. This is a way of outsourcing a portion of what you do to guys. And, and you know, I think Katie Kaminsky has this, you know, as you know, this incredible term crisis alpha. I've been toying with, with tactical alpha. But the thing about tactical alpha as opposed to strategic alpha, right? You're the asset allocator. You're going to deliver strategic alpha by dialing up EM now and making money over the next 10 years versus the S&P or something. But, but tactical alpha, the problem with tactical is that it's, it's considered CNBC. It's the guys who are, you know, day traders. It's, it's, it's not serious investors aren't tactical. And, and I, so I think there needs to be kind of like, I think we have to find a way to frame it that fits better into the language of the people on the allocation side. So it's, when you say it to them, they don't know, it's just, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cause it, cause it, cause it lines up with their observations of the markets. This whole thing about, about people being kind of locked into a position by virtue of their jobs, that resonates with people because they experienced it. So yeah. I don't know. That's that's it's no no. It's yeah. funny when you say that because I mean I th I think you're right that that actually narrative really matters. I mean of course there's been written books about uh, narratives, but 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 the fact that if we could come up with something that um, and you know as 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 you said, I mean I actually thought Crisis Alpha in the beginning when I heard it was was fantastic, and 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 luckily we're going to have Katie back in a few weeks on on the podcast, but. Uh, yeah, narr narrative is is definitely important. So we need to uh, find something um, to uh, help with that. Speaking of help with something, and that is another thing that we've been conditioned to as investors, at least, and that's trying to time things. You know, trying to you know buy the dip or what whatever whatever we we call it. Um, how how do you go about dealing with that in in your day? day-to-day uh, -day conversations and meetings because that's, again, one of the things that I'm trying to, on my side, to compel investors to understand that when it comes to managed futures or trend following, you have to leave all of that aside. I mean, you really have to. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, yeah. I, I've spoken to hundreds of people about it and one guy got it right last year. <laughs> he invested in January and sometime toward the end of October, he just got out entirely. And, and he called me afterwards and, uh, and he said, aha, you know, touche, I did it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I think, I think the, look, I think, and I think Asnes is the, um, he's the standard bearer of, he's like the, 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 the allocator whisperer, 
in terms of what he's done in that he is absolutely brilliant at taking, like if AQR went to people and said, um, you know, we have these black box, leverage, long, short, um, quantitative strategies, it'd be really hard to get that through an investing committee. But, but instead, he seemed to sort of reframe everything they did in terms of these 70-year, 100-year truisms of the market. And, and, and they've done some of that work in trend, where they say basically trend has always been around and it's always going to be around. Again, as somebody who, like, so I, my first job was working for this great value investor, and it was just after Fama had published his value paper, and I was all ready to kind of, you know, go look for value stocks. And I'm telling you, what Fama wrote about in his paper was did not exist in the early 1990s. It was over, right? He described a he described a world of of horse buggies that no longer existed. But I think that there's something incredibly compelling on the allocator side of being able to say this is a truism. This is something that's out there. It's been out for a long period of time. My go-to right now is the Sockgen CTA data. Because now it covers in in 2015 the suspicion was 2008 or, two, or, or the dot com would never repeat. Then we go through the long winter. And, and what happened during the long winter is that a lot of guys, um, it was much easier to kill the space and to claim the space was dead. So it became very, very cool during that period of time as an allocator to say, oh, I used to like managed futures. And I would hear stories of people you know, like, well, I invested with Man AHL in, 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 the, you know, in 2005, and then I got out in 2013. So in part, that was also because everything else was working. So I think on, I think the first step is to talk about the the benefits over a longer period of time as, as we do, so that the month-to-month fluctuations. But then I think it's a lot about understanding how people frame it with their clients, and and how they end up positioning your portfolio. Because the point that you made in the beginning was, of course, people are down last month, or that that who made. Of course, the people who did the best last year are going to be down more this month. The world is changing and it's flipping. You you, you cannot make. $10 on a trade and get out with a 10 cent loss, right? It's, it's, just, it's not the way the investment world works, but rather to always get people to frame of packing it into their other assets from a complementary perspective. And I think I'm making progress on that, but it's, it's hard because I think, you know, there is always this tension when I talked about these kind of long-term asset allocation models, and then the reality if a client calls you on Thursday, and how do you explain it? And I think I think the you know the last thing that I that I would say on it is that I get asked questions a lot on the space that are hard to answer because they don't apply to the space. You know, do you feel better about medium term or short term trend right now? Is a question I get. You know, what direction? I have absolutely no idea how to answer that. Right? And and so my answer is is. I, Yes, I feel I, I like both, you know, <laughs> it's like, so, so I think it's because, because, because in a sense, what, what people have done on the asset management side is they always have a really good narrative of why not to sell it at the bottom. And, and that has a lot to do with the psychology of alligators. So when, you know, and I've worked with, I've worked and been friends with a lot of guys who invest in hedge funds. And we joke about this when they, when they go to make a decision to invest in a hedge fund, they've got these elaborate, you know, 20 page due diligence reports. And they're like, you know, in a, in a high volatility environment, they're going to thrive. And in this environment, they're going to whatever. And, and then invariably, a couple of years later, one of those scenarios has happened. And the fund has done nothing like, like they thought. Right? So what does a Stan Druckenmiller or George Soros do? They sell it. They're out. Right? But, but the moment somebody pulls a trigger on a fund, it, it's, it's, they're wed to it. It's their fund. And, and so... In a lot of areas, like if you invest with a value guy and he does terribly for five years during the value crisis, your argument is, well, don't get out now because, you know, all of his stocks are trading at three times EBITDA. You don't want to be the guy. And, and there's this, and it plays into this ethos of you don't want to be the guy who gets out at the wrong time. The problem in managed futures, there's no argument for reversals. There's no strong argument for short-term reversals, you know, because then you're getting into a discussion about the intrinsic value. So, you know, don't, don't, yeah, yeah, we lost money on, on, uh, on, uh, you know, we were still short treasuries last month and we lost money on it. Don't get it now because, you know, yields are definitely going to go higher. We don't want to be having that discussion with people. We don't want to become the macro strategist. So I'm not sure how to handle that, but I think that's the, that's this a, a really important psychological piece that we're missing. And what I'm trying to do with it is basically say, forget about month to month. Just you got to find a way to leave it alone 
and you know, look at 2022, look at these different periods, look at over longer periods of time, that's where the benefit is and you've got to be able to withstand it. But I, I'm not, I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm, getting, I'm trying to keep, keep working on it. No, no. I mean, I like uh, I like the your thoughts on this, and I uh, I would say my my own uh, my own uh, views on this is that this is where and this is I think where it gets really hard um, because we, unlike so many other types of investments, when it comes to this, we have to get people just to look at the data, just to look at the evidence. Because yeah, we see talking heads on CNBC and Bloomberg uh, coming with all of their predictions, but usually. You know, nobody knows the future, right? Um, and even central banks never forecast a crisis in advance. It just never happens. Um, yet, you know, most people love to hear these views and and so on and so forth. But when it comes to, to managed futures and trend following, we have to just really look at the evidence, um, which you would think would be enormously appealing to people. Say, well, let's just look at the evidence, right? You think, well, yeah, let's look at the evidence, <laughs> like you do in so many things. I mean, you don't you don't go into a court case saying, well, let me let me think what might might have happened. I mean, you look at the evidence, right? So I, you would think, think that there should be some appeal. I, my, my my view is that's not how allocations work, right? That 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 people that people decide what they want to do, and they look for things to support it. So, so one one data point that that. Uh, but wouldn't you say, Andrew, that the evidence should support it, right? Of course, but people will come up with the evidence that they want. My experience with allocators is that they they, they there's a reason they like something. There's a reason they want something. They want diversification. They want to be able to to to, to point to it. The the evidence on on, on managers is, is as a, as a strategy is indisputable, right? It's not. It's the. But how do you get them to want it? And I think getting them to want it is about, and again, first of all, I'm, I'm dealing with advisors who are dealing with, you know, dentists and lawyers and, and others. So there's a huge translation issue in all this stuff. I, and I think that's where metaphors comes in, right? Because, it, and it's got to be a way that resonates. So so I, I wrote this Barron's article uh, editorial, and I basically, you know, talked about managed futures being hurricane insurance, um, uh, but also if you, one where you can get paid while you're waiting for the storm. Because, you know, or, or you know, experiment metaphors, like I've seen people use like riding market waves. And so I've been trying to expand that and say, so here are guys who basically spend their lives building models, trying to figure out how to, how to, how to ride market waves. And every now and then you'll have an earthquake that creates a series of tsunamis. And that's when they do the best, right? Because I think, I think what I found on my side is that once you get into the weeds talking about things and talking about data, people are trained to they're suspicious of it, right? Because if you're a typical allocator, you're getting sold nonsense all day long. You know, a, a uh, you, you know, somebody comes in with ARC and they tell you in 2000 and they tell you that Kathy Wood is the greatest stock picker who's ever lived and, 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 and look where things like that get you. Like it's, it's people sell what they have and what's gone up and they don't tell you it was luck. They don't tell you it was, you know, a convergence of things that happened to go in their favor. They tell you it was skill and, they're gonna, and it's going to be, and it's a repeatable skill. And so allocators are trained whenever you present them with an argument to, you know, the, the, they're, they're trained to try to pick it apart. The way you can mitigate that, I believe, is that psychologically, when somebody wants something because of the benefits that they can see, back to your point about the evidence, they don't ask the questions because they don't want to hear bad things, right? At that point, they want to actually, they're going to ask the questions that, are not about trying to understand, because I, I used to have conversations with people about what we do, and they would want to understand the nitty gritty of how the models work and how they work and what's the data source and everything. And, and I realized over time, it's like, you know, guys, we do this for a living. Dunn does this for a living. Like, there's no, there's no, you're not going to walk in and pick apart their models and say, are you sure that's coded correctly? Right? They have, these guys have been doing this for decades and they have every incentive in the world to keep getting it right and to make it better next year than it is this year. And so let's first talk about the outcome, where it fits in your portfolio, what it does, what are the objectives, why you guys built it the way that you built it. Let them understand that there are human beings who are doing this. Even though you're building quant models, it's human beings doing it, using your judgment every day to decide what to do and what not to do. Get them comfortable with that decision-making as though you were picking stocks. And then once you have that, once they're comfortable and they want you because they trust you as an investor, then a lot of these 
I need to understand in detail what's underneath the hood. A lot of those questions, I think, just sort of go away. Um, and, I, and I think it's because I think, I think with models, people are so afraid they're going to miss something. You know, they don't go in and ask a stock picker, like, how do you know it's not a fraud? You know, it just, but there's, there's always, there's this deep-seated suspicion about models. And that's where I think, I think we can apply, by, by focusing on the other side of the brain, uh, the, the, the more story side of the brain, I think it's, I think it's a way to mitigate it. We'll see, you know, in a, in a year, in a year, I'll, I'll, we'll, I'll, I'll know more. I, I, yeah, I mean, I agree with you on, uh, on obviously getting the, the, the desire built before, um, but that's actually what I meant. I mean, I think in the desire could come from, you know, using the evidence to show people how great it is, but in, but, but, you know, so, all right. Now I've got one more topic, which is not one of your topics, but it concerns you. But is there anything else you wanted to share in terms of this kind of uh, plan we had in, 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 in how we get people? No, to... look, I, lo- I mean, I love talking. Like, I'm, I, first, of all, I love talking to anybody about this stuff um, because I just I learn a lot from both people like you who've been dealing with in, with a different kind of investor than I deal with for years. I just like I think I think for people within the industry, um, I just hope we can keep comparing notes. Because I think collectively, the industry, what we all do, should be 10x what it is now. And you know, and I, and I, my first job on the private equity side was in 1993, and you know, a a billion dollar private equity fund was a huge deal back then, right? Now it's 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 if we're if we're if we can get if we can get the messaging, the education, the positioning right. The industry can be five or 10x what it is right now, and and that requires having these kinds of conversations, I think, because it's not, because, because the evidence is there, right? Then the question is, then it's, it's, it's what's stopping people from following the evidence. Yeah. Well, the good news is that it's already 2x, Andrew, and I think you know where I'm going because there now is apparently from a, a tweet uh, or a few tweets that was shared, a filing for launching a DBMF 2X. And now you as the replicator is being replicated. They're cutting your fees in half. What is going on, Andrew? <laughs> so And how are they doing it? Do you know? How are they doing yeah. it? So actually, so from 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 our perspective, so it's we're we're not involved in the launch of the fund. Um uh, but where it's actually if he raises a dollar, in theory, two dollars comes into the ETF, basically the way it's set up. So it's actually So they borrow, they borrow 50 cents. Every time, yeah. I mean, it, 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 oh, how they actually do the mechanics of it involve banks and swaps and things like that. But basically, um, so I, I am fully supportive of what Matt is doing on it um, because, in you know, one of the things I've learned on the investor side is to focus on the guys who I think, yeah. So sorry to interrupt you here because you said something that actually I just want to be fully clear. I understand it. So are they actually investing in your fund with twice the amount? What 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 I understand happens technically in in these leverage vehicles is that uh, a dollar comes into his ETF. There is a swap with a bank, where the the bank can either look at our positions and hedge themselves through futures contracts with basically two x leverage, or they can go out and just and just buy DBMF, DBMF as a hedge. My expectation is that they're going to do a lot. That's a lot easier for them to do that than the other, but. If 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 it goes in the other direction, I will I'll feel a little bit stupid. Uh, no wonder year. you're supportive of his job if they're going to buy two times your phone. Well, because well, because because <laughs> what he's addressing. So I've had a lot of we had a lot of people ask me last year. You know why isn't there? Because there, there's a whole movement around capital efficiency. You know, and 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 in the ETF, I mean, in the managed futures world, and institutions often think it's silly that you put up a dollar to get a dollar of exposure. Um, you know, why not just put up margin? I can do other things with my, you know, I, I can invest the fixed income myself, et cetera. But um, in the ETF world, in the model world, there's this idea around capital efficiency. And then there's a whole segment of investors that are, we call them gunslingers, right? They want, you know, these are the guys who want to be 2x Tesla because, you know, 1x isn't enough. That's Matt's bailiwick, right? He is, he he knows that world very well. I'm never going to spend my time on that world. I want to spend my time with, with, you know, sober ETF allocators who, you know, have 60, 40 portfolios and are trying to figure out where to, where to move 5% of it. Um, uh, that's, that's always going to be our audience. That's why we built what we do. So to me, it's just a, it's, it's, you know, and there's been a huge proliferation of products in the ETF world. So, um, I, you know, very much wish, obviously wish, uh, Matt to have the best success with it. Um, but we have no, we have no direct involvement in it. 
No, 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 no. But, I mean, so maybe it's a little bit of a, um, let's say, I don't know what the word is, so I have to be careful here, um, but maybe it's not entirely true to say that it is at lower fees because you actually don't know exactly how much fees are packed into this, either through a swap, either through paying you and then charging themselves, etc., etc. I mean, this is kind of a bit of a jungle which I was hoping we were getting away from because I think transparency is incredibly important in terms, especially when it comes to fees and stuff like that. But if there are different avenues for them to get that 2x DBMF, then um, that could be interesting. There we'll are to tons see. and tons of technical issues, <laughs> technical issues around leverage ETFs. Do you do daily rebalancing? Do you do, you know, like uh, Jerry Parker, I think, was making a point. He he read the prospectus and was had some view on on on. I, I, I try to remain as blissfully ignorant of, of those mechanics as I can. Um, but I think what I do, I would say in the ETF world, it's, been a, it's become a lot easier to launch ETFs. There's been a lot more flexibility around derivatives after some rule changes a few years ago. And there is a big push to segment the market and to have funds for specific funds for different segments of the market. And uh, and Matt is that's what Matt's doing with 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 this and and uh, but in terms of exactly the mechanics and how it ends up from you know well I'll I'll probably know a lot more in a year than I do right now although I'll see him next week so so I should ask him <laughs> maybe you said, should ask email, him email me your questions and I'll ask <laughs> exactly him in yeah. <laughs> let me know how that turns out okay good stuff all right um, I think that's gonna be our contribution for this week uh if you enjoyed it why don't you go and leave a rating and review we love if you could take five minutes uh and just go over to uh, apple or spotify or amazon wherever you listen to podcasts please go and leave a rating and review of course as always keep your questions coming to info at top traders on um next week i'm not sure yet who will be joining me it shouldn't stop you from sending in questions i'm sure some some of us will be able to answer them but we'll do our very best uh, and of course go and follow andrew and and uh, some of the other co-hosts here uh, on twitter um there's lots of great information there with that said from andrew and me thanks ever so much for listening we look forward to being back with you next week and in the meantime take care of yourself and take care of each other Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.